It can be hard to see the challenges the people we work with are facing. Addressing these invisible struggles can make us and our companies healthier. Join Holly Robinson-Pete on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Much of the U.S. has been shut down for nearly a month now. With the goal of minimizing the spread of the coronavirus and bringing the number of new cases down. But in order to keep the number of cases down and reopen the country, public health officials say one of the most important things that will have to happen is a longstanding technique called contact tracing. Contact tracing means identifying people who are sick and figuring out who those people have interacted with. The original technology for this is probably a notepad and a telephone. You find somebody who's infected and you write down everybody that they've talked to and you trace it down manually. But there are efforts around the world to develop more sophisticated tools than just a notepad and a telephone. Specifically, a tracking device most of us already carry around in our pockets, our smartphones. And in the U.S., two tech giants, Apple and Google, have formed an unlikely alliance to try and help. Today on the show, Apple and Google team up to use billions of phones to track the coronavirus and what that effort shows about the trade-offs between privacy and public health. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Monday, April 13th. The first place where smartphones started playing a role in tracking the coronavirus is where the outbreak started, in China. I think countries in Asia, having been through the SARS epidemic, were much more ready to take strong action at the outset. Sam Schechner covers technology. And he says that some of China's moves to fight the coronavirus have relied heavily on data that most Americans don't freely give up. China has very different rules around government access to personal information. They can order telecom companies to turn over this information, and they can access information that Chinese companies have on Chinese citizens on Chinese soil. And so in China, telecommunications companies have helped the government track and contact people who had traveled through Wuhan and the Hubei province in the early days of the virus. Our colleagues in Asia have reported on how the government actually instructed an affiliate of Alibaba Group, uh, the big e-commerce giant, to produce an app that would actually give people a color-coded QR code. People were assigned these colors based on their own risk level. If you were green, that meant you had no known exposure to coronavirus and you could move around as normal. But if you're red you likely had contact with an infected person, and authorities might force you to stay home. It's likely that these efforts did help China slow the spread of the virus within its borders. But this approach has raised privacy concerns from the very beginning. I think that when this pandemic broke out, that that was a fear. This would be a catalytic moment that shifts you know, everyone's privacy expectations and technology towards that Chinese model. As the virus spread, Europe became another test case for how governments would balance public health and privacy. 
The European Union has a law known as the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, that requires companies to get explicit permission in order to collect data. And it sets strict guidelines for how that data can be used. It actually has a provision in it for health emergencies, for the use of this data. But what it says is that you have to only use what you really need, and you have to, whenever possible, try to rely on just a proportionate use of that data. So it's been interesting to see the evolution. In Europe, the discussion had at least initially been whether even to do this kind of thing at all. And it's very quickly moved to, okay, no, we're going to do it. And how should we do it? In the Czech Republic, there's, you know, a government-contracted call centers that are basically calling up people who have tested positive and asking them if the government can access their cell phone location histories and using that to identify people to contact. And Slovakia actually just passed a law that allows its public health office to just collect the geolocation data. They don't even need to ask. And, you know, they've just sort of said, listen, yeah, this will interfere with your, you know, rights and freedoms, but that this is proportionate to the crisis that we're facing. Other European countries are talking about building or using mobile apps that people could choose to download if they want, but don't have to. Countries like France and Germany and even some regions in Spain are working on apps that rely on users to opt in to some level of tracking, like reporting your symptoms to a local health authority. Do you have a sense of how citizens in these countries are feeling about these moves? Well, I've interviewed every single person in Europe, so I definitely, (laughs) definitely know how everyone feels. (laughs) I think there's a lot of debate. I mean, you hear different things. You hear some people saying, listen, now's the time we need to just, you know, I don't have anything to hide anyway. I'm stuck at home. Like, we need to do this. And you have other people who are very strict privacy advocates who say, you know, we have to be very careful. This is a big data grab from the government, from private companies. And there's no way I would ever sign up for something like this. An app developer who makes an app like this said he knows people who told him there is no way even to save myself from a disease that I would ever sign up for something like this. As for the United States, the government has relied mostly on aggregate data for more of a bird's eye view rather than tracking individual people. Federal and state governments have been using phone location data from companies that usually sell it to advertisers. The CDC is using that anonymized data to look at general trends about whether people are following social distancing guidelines, and if not, where people are congregating. That's not contact tracing, but that is useful. It tells you, you know, where people are maybe respecting confinement orders, shelter-in-place orders more than in other places, and you can focus public health messages and PSAs on telling people to stay home in those areas. But there have been efforts around the U.S. to create apps that go deeper than aggregate data and start tracking individuals. You have places like MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology is behind an effort called Safe Paths. There's others like Corona Trace, which are essentially, you know, they're trying to create apps that people could download that would log who you've been near, maybe using GPS, an array of different sensors in the phone to kind of create the list of potentially infected people for when you have a confirmed case. As you look out at all of these things that are being tried, from a technological perspective, how would you sort of characterize these different approaches? I mean, are they sufficient? Do they have shortcomings? You know, when you talk to 
both epidemiologists and also the developers who are building some of these things. I mean, first of all, GPS data is just not very accurate. So, you know, you could end up with a lot of false positives if you relied just on GPS. The other big issue that people raise is this question of fragmentation. And if you have a ton of different apps and a ton of different solutions and they aren't interoperable, well, it won't really work. You know, I might be infected and if I'm using Sam app and you're using Ryan app and neither of us get notified, you know, you wouldn't know that you'd spent time near an infected person. So that is a major issue. And it's that fragmentation that two companies are especially well positioned to solve, Apple and Google. On Friday, the two rivals said they would join forces to develop technology that would work across both Apple and Android smartphones to potentially track billions of users. This is a monumental effort in terms of trying to get something distributed. Between the two companies, according to StatCounter, they account for 99.3% of smartphones globally. Wow. That's more than 3 billion devices. That's how much the two of them together dominate the smartphone ecosystem. For the vast majority of people who are connected, this kind of effort could reach them. Coming up, how this new system will work and the privacy concerns it's already starting to raise. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Welcome back. Apple and Google's coronavirus tracking system is still in development. But from what the two companies have announced so far, Sam was able to walk me through how it might work. The way the Apple and Google technology will work is that there's going to be an app, probably an official app from your local public health authority, let's say the CDC. And you're going to download that to your phone and you're going to click, okay, yes, I want you to track people that I come in contact with. And let's say I'm going to do that too. And so in the background, what your phone's going to start to do is broadcast an ID code, one that changes every roughly 15 minutes just to the near surrounding area. And any other phone running that app is going to be broadcasting its own ID code that changes every 15 minutes. Those anonymous ID codes would be broadcast using the Bluetooth technology in your phone. It's the same technology you might use to connect your phone to a wireless speaker or a pair of headphones. Bluetooth signals can only communicate with devices that are within about 30 feet. And if our two phones are near each other, let's say we're you know, sitting on the bench of a park somewhere, and we're within you know, a few feet of each other for long enough, 
the phones will record each other's ID codes. So as Sam and I sit on that park bench together, the ID codes would get stored directly on each of our phones to keep a record of the fact that we spent time near each other. And then, let's say three days later, I test positive for coronavirus. I'd report that positive test result into the app on my phone, and then Sam's phone would get a notification. And depending on how the health authority set it up, the alert might say, you know, click here to inform the CDC that you were in contact with somebody who was infected to arrange for testing. And at that point, the human contact tracers would likely call you and try to figure out if you are also somebody who's infected. But this system has its limitations. First of all, the technology that the app would rely on, Bluetooth, may not be all that precise. Are we close enough? Is there a wall between us? People are supposed to be at home, but let's say we're not at home anymore. We go to a drive-in theater and we park next to each other for two hours, but we never open our windows. And there's not really any contamination risk there, but our phones might log us of having been next to each other. That is obviously a big issue here because if you're getting false positives by saying that I've come into contact with somebody who was sitting next to me in a car and when we didn't actually have a chance of spreading. And I go into quarantine for 14 days as a result of that false positive. That That's a pretty big deal. Well, think about it by way of example. Bluetooth beacons now are used sometimes to show you offers in a store, right? So let's say you're walking through a mall and the Bluetooth beacon thinks you're in a store and it gives you an offer for a new pair of jeans. And you're like, I'm not in that store. I don't need those jeans. That's maybe a minor inconvenience, but if, by contrast, your phone suddenly tells you you need to stay at home for 14 days and the government's going to come checking up on you, well, you know, that's the kind of false positive you really want to avoid. This kind of a false positive wouldn't be the only potential pitfall of a system like this. There is also the fact that not everyone has a smartphone. And how do you make sure that people report their test results honestly? And in addition to those hurdles, because this app would be one you'd have to voluntarily download and opt into, there's also the challenge of getting enough people to download the app in the first place in order for it to be effective. You know, one epidemiologist colleague of mine spoke with said that you'd really want 60% of a country's population to download an app for it to be effective. So you'd catch 60% of the contacts. You know, I've spoken to others who say, listen, one in four would be useful Remembering that this is to supplement traditional contact tracing, if you could automatically get one in four, that wouldn't be bad. Especially because there are things like super spreader events where somebody's in a restaurant for two hours, they don't realize that they have coronavirus, and they can spread it to a ton of people. You're not necessarily going to be able to find out who was in that restaurant using traditional methods. It's just too many people coming and going. The timing really matters. You don't know who is seated close enough for it to matter. So even if you could catch one in four of the people in that restaurant, that could be helpful. But if it's less than that, I mean, if you're talking about one in 20 people, it's probably, you know, going to be marginal in its benefit. Apple and Google have said that this sort of contact tracing technology could eventually be built into their operating systems, which would make it much easier for adoption. Instead of asking people to download a new app, there would be just some sort of a pop-up built into the phone that would ask you if you'd like to turn the tracking on. But until then, without a built-in app driving widespread adoption, this tracking system would depend on how comfortable individual people are with giving up their personal data. 
Apple and Google have been pretty clear that in their protocol, the data about who you spend time with stays on your phone. The only thing that gets uploaded ever is an infected person's list of ID codes that they have broadcast. Now, I mean, if you don't believe Apple and Google, then yeah, I mean, that's a lot of information. But, you know, Apple and Google already control the operating system of your phone. And so, you know, they already can learn pretty much anything about you they want. So if you trust them, the system is relatively secure. But you have these apps that are tracking what phones you've been near. Well, that's still metadata on, you know, everyone's social relations on the social graph. And, you know, I'm sure any intelligence service would love to have access to a nationwide list of who knows who. Would you download and use it yourself? Well, I'm a pretty uh, privacy nut person. So I'm pretty uh, reticent to opt into this kind of thing. But what, I'm going to sit here and say that my privacy about who I associate with is worth more than the lives of, you know, people who are more vulnerable than I am. I I don't feel comfortable making that call. So, you know, I think that as a population, it makes sense for us to do what we can to try and limit the spread of this disease and limit the number of people who die. And that's worth more than my uh, my privacy, as long as it's, you know, not a permanent thing. But, you know, that's just me, and I think everyone would have to make their own choice about it. What do you think is going to happen to these systems after this coronavirus pandemic is over? That is the three billion person question. There's obviously going to be governments that would love to get a hold of some of this data. You know, in a way, Apple and Google have cut off some of the avenues for really pervasive data gathering. Apple and Google say, and, you know, have published some of their code to indicate this, that all of the data that's kept on your phone would be deleted if you delete the app. And one could hope that data that the government collects from the app, you know, that you would be entering and and kind of submitting to the government, that they would delete after the end of the pandemic as well. But, you know, we'll see. This is a big test of how much privacy has become baked into the global conversation around tech. Are we going to see governments opt for solutions and use this as an occasion to gather more information about their citizens? Or private companies as a way to sort of, you know, rehabilitate the image of data brokers and say, no, no, we're helpful. Please give us your data. Please keep giving us your data. Or... Is this going to be a situation where it's sort of underlined how extraordinary it is, how this is an exception, and the rule should be that this kind of data does not come off of your phone? Apple and Google have said that some of the underlying technology for these apps should be ready by mid-May. That's all for today, Monday, April 13th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode from Lisa Lynn, Rolf Winkler, James Marson, Catherine Stepp, and Drew Hinshaw. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.